Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quicken. So when you think of emergency relief, you may picture food donations and tarps and disaster trucks locations around the globe. Over the past year, COVID-19 has changed the face of both disaster and response, as uneven access to supplies and medicines have taken a hefty toll in so many areas. AmeriCares has been on the front lines of this type of response since 1979, as the leading global nonprofit provider of donated medicines and medical supplies provided to around 90 countries each year. In the face of the coronavirus pandemic, AmeriCares has delivered critical supplies and provided clinical care in some of the hardest hit locations. My guest today, Stephanie Kaufman, leads the organization's strategic partnerships, in which capacity she leads the organization's partnership growth strategy, new partnership models, and broadens engagement with corporate, foundation, public, pharmaceutical, and health partners. Stephanie, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you so much, Aaron. I'm so excited to be with you today and to talk all things AmeriCares and purpose and the impact that we can all have. Well, it's great to have you. And I'm going to start with a really basic question. So you have a really interesting background that we're going to get into. It covers online, it covers entertainment, having been at Universal Pictures for many years, travel, arts, museums, visitors bureaus. You know, you've held marketing, communications, and partnership roles across so many different industries. Before joining AmeriCares, you were with the Breast Cancer Research Foundation for a number of years. And, you know, when you say Breast Cancer Research Foundation, I know exactly, for the most part, what that foundation does. And what's interesting is when we had this opportunity to speak with you about AmeriCares, I know AmeriCares is a brand. I know it does great things but I don't know specifically what AmeriCares does. So let's start there because I'm sure I'm not the only one. In the same way that, to be honest, when I had the Red Cross on, I know what the Red Cross does, but once we got into really what the Red Cross has done and the history behind the Red Cross, I was, and hopefully my listeners are fascinated by the breadth and the depth of the types of services the Red Cross provides. And I feel that we're in a similar situation with AmeriCares. So let's just start there, AmeriCares. What does AmeriCares do? And I know the backstory is really fascinating, so if you can touch on that as well. Absolutely. I think AmeriCares is probably one of the most magical NGOs that are out there. And a lot of people don't really appreciate it. And I certainly did it before I joined AmeriCares. The depth and breadth of what AmeriCares does. At the heart, it believes that health is essential. And it is a global health and humanitarian aid organization that's led under a couple of different pillars. Emergency response, which is I think what most people may know AmeriCares for, and that's our ability to kind of, when disaster happens, you know, the traditional kind of acute disasters of hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, wildfires, you know, we go in and work with local health center partners to give them access to medicine, supplies, you know, all the things that they may need to restore services to the patients that they serve. And we've been doing that for over 40 years. And it was this notion by Bob McCauley that Americans definitely care and they want to make an impact on, you know, helping people around the world. And so it was literally 40 years ago, grabbing some supplies, putting it on a plane and then figure out how to get it there. And now it's, we're a global organization headquartered in Stanford, but we also do extraordinary work in terms of reaching 
health center locations around the world every single day where we're really looking to bridge the gaps that persist in equitable access, quality of healthcare and experience with care. And we do that not only in Stanford through the four free clinics that we operate in four locations in Connecticut, but we also have a thousand health center partners that we work with to provide everything with access to medicine and donated medical supplies, as well as technical expertise in terms of patient and healthcare provider interactions, mental health training. And we do that not only here in the U.S., but around the world, where, as you mentioned, we reach 90 countries. And we're there where we identify what are some of the acute needs. And then we also make commitments on disasters and health center needs that are very protracted. And we've been doing it for a number of years. And certainly, you know, within the world of COVID, We have been very much on the front line. And certainly, you know, this year has proven that health is fundamental. It's the key to everything, right? It's economic security, children going to schools, thriving communities. And, you know, so we've been doing a lot of work in terms of providing critical PPE and medication to 30 countries. Over 14 million supplies have been delivered. We're working to create skill sets with countries that may not have it available in terms of mental health and psychosocial support and infectious disease control. We're doing clinical services. We're also becoming a trusted source of information. So we just announced that the CDC has identified AmeriCares as their lead partner to create some public health campaign work around COVID vaccine hesitancy and including within the health worker community themselves. And, you know, we're doing incredible work in Africa around respectful care for maternal health and, and child care. So there's a whole depth and breadth of work that AmeriCares does to really create health equity in very specific areas. So that's all incredible. So the story of its founding, though, I mean, I read this and I think this is amazing, right? So Bob McCauley, your founder, the idea came from back in the mid-70s, right? I know the organization was founded in 79 after a U.S. jet carrying a couple hundred Vietnamese orphans crashed into the jungle outside of Tan Son Nut. And actually, it was April 1975. And this guy basically commandeered and or chartered like a 747. This is back in the mid-70s, right? Yes. To rescue these kids within 48 hours. So that's the story. That's true, right? That's not just lore. That's That was the beginning of the idea, the inception of AmeriCares. That is correct. The, you know, Bob McCauley is such a legend. And unfortunately, you know, he left us about 10 years ago, but he's really a remarkable legacy. And yes, what you're talking about absolutely is true. You know, he had this, you know, great business career, where he founded the Virginia Fiber Corporation and remained their chairman until 1990. But it was back in 1968, he founded the Shoeshine Boys Foundation to support Vietnamese children orphaned by war. And then in 1975, as Saigon was falling, he mortgaged his new Canaan home to charter that first jet of what became known as Operation Babylift, which rescued hundreds of orphaned Vietnamese babies who had been injured when that prior charter jet had crashed. And that really kind of planted the seed for him to, you know, think about how to impact lives. And and really, he understood through his work with Covenant House, Mr. McCauley had met 
Pope John Paul II, who had asked him if he could do something to help Poland, which was in desperate need of medical supplies. And Mr. Macaulay leveraged his business acumen and contacts, and he was able to raise $1.5 million in aid to Poland. And that ultimately sent 38 airlifts to Poland to give them the medicines that Pope John Paul had said that, you know, was desperately needed. And so he thought, well, wow, if I, if I could do this here, I could do this worldwide. And, and that's how AmeriCares was born. That's amazing. It was it always called AmeriCares? It's always called AmeriCares. We've had a couple of different iterations of our logo, but yeah. yeah. That's incredible. I didn't know the part about mortgaging his house so he can yeah. charter the jet. That's that's incredible and, and save lives. So are you one of these people that actually joined or started a new job during COVID? I would be absolutely who started a new job during COVID and feel very fortunate to have joined an organization whose work is to help people slow the spread of COVID, provide those much needed supplies and, and be a part of hopefully our ability to recover faster. But prior to joining AmeriCares, I was with the Breast Cancer Research Foundation for nearly five years, an extraordinary organization who is solely focused on funding breast cancer research and funding about 275 projects across 14 countries. And the Breast Cancer Research Foundation was founded in the late 80s by another trailblazing philanthropist, Evelyn Lauder of the Estee Lauder Companies. And, you know, unfortunately, with COVID-19 and the impacts that it was having on philanthropy, and a lot of support, thankfully, was going to organizations who are in the forefront of COVID, other organizations were impacted by a decline in funding. And so that had some impacts. And one of those impacts was my role at, at BCRF. And so here I am with millions of other Americans thinking about what's next. And, you know, through good fortune, I had learned about this opportunity with AmeriCares. I had a, a very good friend who's the chief marketing officer for AmeriCares, Jed Selkowitz. We had worked together in a previous life when he was with Coca-Cola and I was with Universal Studios. And he had posted on LinkedIn, hey, AmeriCares is looking for a head of strategic partnerships. It's a newly formed group. If you know of anybody who would be interested, let me know. And, and it was in some ways serendipity because as much as I absolutely loved the work and the accomplishments at BCRF, I was definitely getting to a point of I wanted to expand my career in the global healthcare, NGO healthcare space to get into disaster relief. I grew up in Florida where disasters of hurricanes and tornadoes certainly had an impact when I grew up. I lived in Los Angeles. And so it just felt like there was a little bit of the universe guiding me to this new opportunity through what was a difficult circumstance came into this tremendous new opportunity. So I have not met any of my colleagues in person. I have not met the incredible chief development officer, Jenny Goldstein, who I thrive under leadership, or our incredible CEO, Christine Squires, who started in her role as CEO of AmeriCares the day that AmeriCares had to go fully remote. So it's been interesting, rewarding, and it's one of those opportunities that I certainly have learned a lot in being you know, fully remote. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that adage that creativity is best born of constraints. And while this is not an ideal situation and that we're all still quite remote, even though slowly things are becoming more normal, I do think that we all have a greater appreciation for our health. And also, 
you know, given the constraints of not having human interaction or like a traditional work environment, you know, we've all found ways to make the most of it, be as productive, as performative as possible. But I just am most fascinated by people who have, you know, either joined or changed during this super uncertain time. And I guess you do have the benefit of at least joining an organization that is doing so much for health and well-being. And that's where I wanted to go next, because while mask wearing should not be political or partisan, sadly, it's become that way. And even though vaccination rates are increasing, so are variants and so are surges in the virus. And you guys recently launched a wear a mask campaign, and you primarily did it through song and dance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because when I talk about sometimes the best creativity is born of constraints, I think this is a really great example. No, absolutely. I think some people would say, why are you launching wear a mask campaign? Shouldn't that have been done, you know, March of last year? And and the reality is the next few months, several months, remain crucial. So as Agreed. You know, the release of vaccines is happening, the rollout certainly hasn't been smooth here in the US or around the world, you know, people have begun to let their guard down and, and certainly can understand why, right? There's pandemic fatigue. Many are not following safety measures. They're loosening, you know, their behavior. And unfortunately, what we are seeing is infection rates are back on the rise. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, France announced its third lockdown within the year because of rising infection rates. And you've got a bunch of, my words, not yours, dumbass governors reversing mask mandates, which is incomprehensible. It's just incomprehensible to me. I just don't understand that. So Sorry, continue. No, no, absolutely. And the, and the reality is masks do work. And so we felt it was really important to get back out there with some public health messaging, because that's, you know, who we are in terms of a public health organization, that wearing a mask is still, and washing your hands and, you know, social distance is still very important. But specifically where, you know, we were talking about that is we wanted to look at, you know, where where's the demo that's probably less likely to follow these safety measures. And research has shown it's the 18 to 34 year old, you know, cohort. And they just, it's because they see COVID-19 as a lower personal risk. They're at the end of the line to receive their vaccines. And, you know, I think about when I was, you know, in my twenties, you just, you know, you live for today, right? But it's really not about them. A Pew study had had released this data point, which still blows me away, that 52% of 18 to 30 year olds now live back with their parents, their more vulnerable parents and grandparents, it is the largest number of young adults living back at home since the Great Depression. So, you know, we are clearly not out of the woods yet, and everybody has a responsibility to keep their safe. But, you know, as we talked about, there's like, okay, 18 to 34, government mandating mask wearing never necessarily <laughs> inspires the younger audience to do anything. So how do we think about making masks, you know, a little bit back on the hot side. And how do we create maybe a pop culture conversation with that cohort, that demographic that will speak with them as opposed, you know, at them. And so we thought, you know, maybe a a unique way of going about it is create something that felt very TikTok influenced and kind of a fun song that we could drop on Spotify and Apple. We could, you know, create a TikTok choreography around it. And so that's what we did. We, in in essence, you know, through our creative partners at Zambezi in LA, along with Hallwood Media, who is 
They represent an incredible core head of songwriting talent. The 87s wrote Wear a Mask lyrics for us, and it's performed under the, the name of Young, Y-O-U-N-G, Vax, V-A-X. And we launched last week, Tidal World Health Day, and you can download the song on Spotify and Apple. We did special choreography on TikTok. We have several different iterations of the campaign coming out. We're doing lyric versions of the video in Spanish. We have partnered up with Amber G Productions and Definitely Dope to do ASL versions, which I'm really excited about in terms of making sure that this campaign is equitable and reaches all different types of audiences. And we are you know, going to run over the next couple of months, thanks to the work that we're doing with our partners to really get that message out there because it's important. And we're already seeing some really nice organic traction where people are like, love the song. We have not necessarily seen the traditional kind of divisive conversations around wearing masks. People are like, oh my gosh, this song's super cool. The dance is a fire and lots of fire emojis. So we're hoping that we can shift some of that behavior in the next coming months and we'll, we'll do some tracking around it. And is the assumption that I know that the, the target on that cohort makes complete sense, especially given the research. Sometimes I feel like though, you know, we're, we're preaching to the choir, but it sounds like there's still some more education and more communication that still needs to be done with that cohort. Because, you know, in my own non-scientific, non-polling experience, I've experienced a lot of older people, too, not following the rules. <laughs> really older people. And I'm like, wow, you're really old. You really need to follow these rules. But it sounds like there's really no harm in it. And how has the performance been? How's the pickup been? I know it's early days. I know you just I was going to say, it. it's, it's a weekend. So far, our video, and again, organic placement, we're working with a couple of brand partners that hopefully I can announce in a couple of weeks that are going to really give us the amplification. But we already have nearly over 400,000 views of the video that we quietly dropped, right? There was no big marketing campaign behind it. We have had several thousand downloads of the song. And so as we really kind of ramp up with some partner media that we're getting some general support behind, some additional influencers that we're tapping into. We're really hoping to see those numbers grow over the next couple of weeks. But to be honest with you, for kind of an NGO who's not necessarily putting, you know, quote unquote, marketing budget behind this to kind of already scale up to over 400,000 views on a kind of that unboosted content, we're, we're really pleased by it. And I think what we're even more pleased by is just looking at the engagement that we're seeing across those channels and the conversations that are happening that may not have happened if it was like AmeriCares comes out. You know, it's very kind of, we just dropped it very subtly. Actually, we dropped it on April 2nd, and then we made the official launch announcement on, on April 7th, tied to World Health Day, so that the conversation could happen in a different way and wasn't like, oh, public health organization coming out in a different way. Now you just have to get like, you know, Fauci and the new CDC director, Walensky, to do the TikTok dance, do the choreographed dance. That would be That's amazing. in our dreams. <laughs> That's definitely in our dreams. For you sure. got a dream. You never know. It might happen. Absolutely. For sure, Fauci. I think he's probably game, right? But no, I think that's really cool. And, you know, what in your role as head of strategic partnerships, is a lot of that partnering with other brands as well and doing barters and trades and working to amplify the message of AmeriCares? That's exactly it. I mean, we work with, in general, we're very fortunate. We have over 200 partners that work with AmeriCares in various ways. So we we have partners that work with us on our access to medicine program where they donate, you know, critical medicines to us that then we go and distribute into 
health centers around the world, medical supplies. Then we work with other corporate partners and we leverage their technology to help us create, you know, new technical expertise, like in the area of water, access to water and sanitation and hygiene, which had not been an area that we were deeply involved in, but now we are because particularly as you're looking to slow the spread of infectious diseases like COVID-19, access to water, sanitation, and hygiene is, is critically important. We work with a lot of partners who come on board with us through our America's Emergency Response Program. And that's how a lot of partners actually, they're not an access to medicine partner, but they're looking to support disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. That's usually how they step into AmeriCares. And then we we share with them the depth and breadth of what we're doing, particularly on this notion of health equity, and then they become invested. So it's everything from, you know, certainly financial commitment to support the work we're doing. We definitely look to a lot of great partners to help give us marketing voice because we're not an NGO that necessarily buys big television, you know, spots and, and spends money on media per se. We look to our partners to help us with expertise to really create organizational acceleration on key initiatives. So there's a lot of different ways that we work with various corporations, foundations, as well as what I would call our health delivery partners. And where the operating budget, what percentage comes from partners versus donors versus grants and things like that, individual donors and grants? You know, it's out of probably a $60 million budget, we probably, I mean, the mix of, if you don't include the value of the access to medicine program, corporate foundations right now is around 20 million. And we see that there's a tremendous opportunity there. And then the balance in terms of public funding, which AmeriCare has only recently started being in the public funding space. It's, you know, it's long-term, it's multi-year, and that's probably around $25 million. And the, the balance comes through incredible, you know, incredible donations through individual philanthropy still leads, you know, our funding resources. And we're, we're very thankful for those individuals who make that philanthropic commitment day in and day out. That's, that has sustained a lot of NGOs and nonprofits. And I know you're relatively new to the organization-ish. But or a year in, actually, maybe a little more than a year in, but less than four and a half months. Oh, sorry, sorry, four and a half months. Sorry, <laughs> but anecdotally, has donations and/or funding and support gone up, stayed the same, or gone down post-COVID or during COVID? Has definitely gone up. I think as organizations have on two fronts, as they were looking to, we want to support COVID recovery. And so, you know, certainly in the early days of, you know, people were trying to access PPE and medical supplies and and things along those lines, we definitely got an influx around our COVID, our COVID work. And that's only grown. We still seem to have a lot of engagement, particularly as as we move into what we call COVID 3.0. So, you know, how do we work with our our partners around, you know, vaccine equity, because no one's safe until everyone's safe. So how do we make sure that populations that are not included in any of the national rollout plans, including here in the U.S., you know, how do we work through opportunities to, you know, create vaccine equity? A big area that we're seeing is tremendous burnout through healthcare workers. So we are rolling out mental health trainings to work with healthcare workers, not only here in the U.S., but internationally. There's still a lot of training that ha- there's a critical shortage of healthcare workers around the world internationally. So how can we work with community health volunteers on 
you know, everything to understanding things around COVID vaccine, how to administer the vaccine, addressing vaccine hesitancy. So we've got a tremendous amount of work ahead of us, but there's been a lot of engagement around supporting that work. The second piece is not surprising to anyone is the conversation. I think what COVID has done is is really, there's two pandemics, number one, COVID-19, and number two, COVID-19 has laid bare the health inequities that exist for disproportionate communities. And, and certainly here in the U.S., COVID has had an impact on, you know, the Black community, Latin Hispanic community, the indigenous populations. And that's what we're trying to do every single day is how do we close those gaps and give access to care for the 2 million folks who use community health centers and, and clinics for their health care that's not a part of that conversation. And so that's the critical work that we're doing to, you know, health equity has been where we're at all the time, but certainly, you know, in this kind of dual pandemic situation. Yeah, I've long said, and obviously I'm not the only one saying this, that COVID has been the ultimate clarifier across everything. It surfaces inequities. It also surfaces weaknesses and cracks in for-profits, nonprofits, organizationally, values-based. I mean, it's challenged everything. And we've seen organizations, both on the commerce side as well as nonprofit side, fold and others, you know, use it and get stronger, right? And it's been hard to watch all that happen. I wonder, though, how hard it's been to prioritize. You know, you listed so many things that the organization is doing. And the truth is, is that COVID's never going away. Like, there'll be booster shots. It's going to be like the flu. And I'm sure, I hate to say this, but it's probably pretty certain that we'll face another pandemic, at least in our lifetime. How do you prioritize what you're going to focus on? And I know it changes because you also represent and address acute needs as well as longer systemic issues. You know, it's the question that we ask ourselves every day. And particularly when I think about our programs team, the needs are so great in terms of where do we go? I think first things first is when we evaluate where are we going to make that impact, we are looking at where do we truly add value, not just layer on it because there's no value if you already have two or three NGOs on the ground doing that work and we're just adding to layer, like where is that acute need? Where do we have the expertise? And where can we work, particularly with local partners, in delivering that expertise or resources that they don't already have? So, you know, we're looking for complementary partnerships. We're looking at where we can bring in our expertise and our resources that will make a very specific impact in a way that isn't already being accommodated by another NGO on the ground? How do then we maybe help other NGOs create opportunities through maybe the funding resources that we have available that sometimes they don't have available? So for example, we work very closely with another NGO, Anera, that does a lot of work in the Middle East and, and particularly right now in the Lebanon the Lebanon crisis and, and working to help them find some funding for vaccine equity for the Palestinians that are within Lebanon. So, you know, we, we really try to look through that lens of where can we deepen our impact? How do we engage, you know, locally? And then where where can we lend expertise and that's not being covered by others so that that impact happens? But I will tell you, it's a conversation that we have every single day because the needs, as I said, are many. And we have such a committed group of humanitarians that want to, quite frankly, solve all of these needs. But the resources 
and the funding, you know, really do have to make us prioritize. We have an incredible team member base of 600 AmeriCare's employees working around the world, doing this work every single day. And, you know, just their commitment to wanting to create health, health is fundamental to everybody, you know, kind of shines through, but you do have to prioritize. Yeah. And uh, the thing that strikes me, and I, I don't think a lot of our listeners really can appreciate, or some can probably is, you know, in speaking with microfinance organizations, as well as Clinton Foundation and Red Cross and others, there's a lot of cultural nuance and sensitivity that needs to be baked in and fully integrated into all these initiatives, whether it is in Lebanon or Liberia, right? And your community partnerships for respectful care. And that stuff's hard, right? That stuff's really hard because one misstep, you lose trust in those communities and you're not invited back, even though you're well-intended. Look, we always, and I think a lot of NGOs, but we're always looking to provide culturally appropriate care in the locations that we have clinical services. I think a huge shift that you're seeing in in the NGO space is some NGOs would come into, into a region and just kind of want to push down their ideas of this is how it should be done. And then they would, they would leave and not fully appreciating that there is generally speaking, a lot of local expertise, a lot of innovations at the local level that partners have, and you need to listen and be a part of the solution with them. And I think that that's a huge shift that we're seeing. And, and certainly that's what we try to do in terms of our role. Yeah, and it's, and it's not one size fits all, right? It's not so one, yeah. no, it's not one size fits all. It's changes community by community, health issue by, by health issue. You mentioned an initiative that we launched last year in 2020, that our community partnerships for respectful care in Liberia, as well as Tanzania. But in the case of, you know, Liberia, we've been implementing a women's and children's health program in Liberia since 2015. And the idea was around that particular program is how do we improve the quality and utilization of maternal health care? And, you know, working through creating clinical trainings to healthcare providers and on-the-job coaching and mentoring some technical support and, you know, working with local communities to increase healthcare. But, you know, I think what we had a very stark realization and certainly supported through some research that the U.S. Agency for International Development, or known as USAID, found that women around the world are increasingly at risk of mistreatment during pregnancy and childbirth, including, you know, physical and verbal abuse, their stigmatization, discrimination, there's often non-consented care, there's the use of, of force during procedures, which, you know, is just horrifying. There's detention facilities for non-payment, and then there's been abandonment and neglect by healthcare workers. And as a result of that, you can imagine that it's a pretty powerful disincentive for women to seek care. And so we launched this program with the support of a USAID grant to really work with health workers at private and faith-based facilities in Liberia, along with some work that we're doing in Tanzania, to improve these very people-centered skills. So how to counsel women or families on their rights to respectful care, how to encourage women to deliver with a skilled attendant, how to seek out family planning, which can have all sorts of cultural nuances attached to it, how to think through postnatal care, 
We're also working to provide training in managing complications during pregnancy and childbirth. And we're looking to really kind of elevate the role of health providers, which sometimes is not always the case. How do we increase the women in those communities, giving them the education knowledge in terms of what's available around health services, and then really working every single day with local leaders to kind of break down those social barriers. And we we have a five-year commitment to to be in that program. So it's not a situation where we go in one year and then just kind of like, okay, we did a couple of a couple of programs and, and we're out. There's a long-term commitment to make sure that the women in Liberia, and like I said, we're doing it in Tanzania, really do have that respectful care for maternal and child health. Yeah, it's incredible as much as we complain about our health system and in the US, which it deserves its complaints and there's still a lot of breakage and there's a lot of reform that still needs to happen. When I hear stories like that and you talk about these initiatives, I am just so grateful for what we do have. Even though what we have, we still think needs more work. I mean, it is the disparity. It's not even centimeters away. We're miles apart when it comes to these things. And we still have a lot of work to do here in the US. So I applaud all those efforts. I'm fascinated, continue to be fascinated by the work that AmeriCares does. And I love the backstory and your founder, whose memory may always be a blessing. I know, I think you had mentioned he's hasn't been with us for 10 years, but his legacy stays with us clearly, as does the incredible work that this organization does. Thanks to folks like you and your colleagues in AmeriCare. So I, I appreciate you coming on the show and I look forward to continue to watch the great work that you guys do, not just in this moment that hopefully will be through sooner rather than later, but also in the future endeavors both here and in the the 90 countries that you guys support and operate in around the world. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about AmeriCares and the work that we do. And I appreciate the platform you're providing us. Thanks, Stephanie. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quipkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Mm-hmm.